Welcome back to the Retro Horror Academy. My name is Daniel Richardson, and in this episode, we are going to be talking about the year in horror, 1925. It is a full moon out tonight, so, you know, we got the extra atmosphere, which means nothing on a podcast, but hey, work with me here. So, like with every goddamn year in the 20s, I've noticed, there isn't really a whole lot of advancement in, or news in horror other than the movie we're, you know, ranking. So, you know, we'll get to that in a, in a bit, I guess. Uh, but first, we're going to get to this episode's induction into the Horror Hall of Fame. Last week, or sorry, last episode. Yeah, it was last week. Um, you know, we introduced a new segment, the Horror Hall of Fame, where we'll be taking um, legends, icons of the horror genre who have, you know, helped shape the horror community that we have today. And, you know, we give them the proper spotlight and we induct them into the Horror Hall of Fame. And last week's uh, inductee was George Milas. I apologize again if I am butchering that name. But George Milas was the director of the very first horror film, The uh, House of the Devil. And so obviously he gets a spot in the uh, Hall of Fame. And so, a couple of quick rules that I threw down last time. I'll probably just repeat it every time, just so I don't have people constantly asking these questions. Uh, one, you know, we're looking at this from, spec- uh, from the perspective of the year we're uh, inducting. So, like right now, we're covering 1925. So, obviously, you know, nobody from the future. We're not throwing in John Carpenter or Wes Craven, because they're not even born yet. Uh, and secondly, uh, we're going to put people who would have been Hall of Fame worthy that year. Meaning, your Lon Chaney's, your uh, Conrad Verdes, these guys are not getting in because they're currently working right now. They're killing it right now in the horror genre. Uh, especially Mr. Lon Chaney, which we'll talk about quite a bit tonight. Uh, so yeah, it'd be ridiculous to put them in because they're currently working. No, we're looking for those people who are seasoned who have contributed to the horror genre uh, in you know insurmountable ways. So with that all out of the way, let me introduce to you this week's induction into the Horror Hall of Fame. Mary Shelley. She was the author of Frankenstein, or the modern-day Prometheus, you know, full fucking title there. Uh, but no, flat out, let's just be realistic. And thing is, you know, for us being from, you know, even beyond 1925 we know that the biggest frankenstein movie hasn't even come out yet however i think that you know for its time it was a huge landmark in uh, gothic horror uh it's a very influential movie in fact it, they already done three versions of it at this point we've only covered one on this show because unfortunately the other two have been um lost uh, to the you know ravages sands of time so you know we only have the one Edison version, but it's clear that, you know, this story was a huge hit for its time and continues to be so today. And for that alone, uh, Michelle is definitely in the Horror Hall of Fame. So, uh, yeah, she joined George Milas in our pantheon of uh, horror icons, people who have contributed uh, greatly to our little community here. So, congratulations, Mary Shelley. Uh Unfortunately, I think she died 
like before even 1925. Like I think she kicked it at the end of the 1800s. Maybe she made it to the 1900s, but not far into that. So even then, she wouldn't have got to see you know her award. You know, but hey, it is what it is. So with that out of the way, we have two horror films from 1925 that we're going to review and rank for you. Um, so let's get to it. At number two, winner of our Silver Skull Award, The Monster. Uh, the Monster, you got this kind of, I don't know, I don't want to say spineless, kind of a weak-willed uh, individual who he works as a clerk. Uh, however, he decides to try to be a uh, investigator, try to be a detective, you know, and he decides, you know, there's some weird stuff going on at that uh, insane asylum, the abandoned insane asylum, let's go check it out, and that's kind of, the, you know, the gist here. Um, at this point, you know, Lon Chaney has already been, you know, a huge, you know, star, uh, Hunchback of Notre Dame, the, uh, sorry, the penalty, and uh, yeah, he's, you know, and he's poised for another huge hit. Uh, this year as well. We haven't gotten to that. That will be our number one. Uh, for those who know there are horror films from 1925, you already know what I'm talking about, but um, we'll get there. Uh, the Monster. Uh, however, this is kind of one of those odd things because The Monster um, does not have much of Lon Chaney starting off. Like He's top build. It's Lon Chaney in The Monster, and yet we don't see him until, like I don't know, half hour plus into the film. Uh, this movie has been, you know, cited for starting a couple of subgenres, which I'm going to call bullshit on one of them. They claim this is the first, you know, dark house, you know, old dark house subgenre, which, you know, you always have these group of people show up at this old creepy house and horror slash comedy ensues. And we've already saw that with One Exciting Night three years prior. So to say this one gets that one, gets that nod, I'm going to call bullshit on. Now, granted, uh, one exciting night had less horror in it, I guess, than the monster, but uh, it's not like this is much better anyway, so sorry. I'm giving the nod to One Exciting Night. However, this is the first time we dabble in the uh, mad scientist, mad doctor uh, subgenre, uh, especially, you know, a mad doctor who's using these, uh, you know, his, these abominations as his minions. And, uh, yeah, this is the first time we have seen that. So, I, I guess for that alone, you know, it deserves some kind of praise. It's getting silver skulls. It's getting silver skulls. So, you know, we'll, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll give it that. Um, I don't know what else to say about this film. Uh, you know, it, it, review-wise, a lot of people, it was kind of in the middle of the road for a lot of people. Uh, with people, you know, citing that the main thing was the fact that it's kind of a lack of Lon Chaney starting off and... That seemed to you know kind of you know get, get everybody going eh about it. For me personally, and I guess I'll go into my review part of this. Uh, you know, I, you know, even when I watched it, I was a fan of you know certain silent horror films, uh, including the one that we're going to talk about next. But um, this, for whatever reason, just did not grab me at all. I and I think maybe because when I went into it, I was expecting it to be more out and out horror, and the fact that it kind of dabbles in comedy it's just i don't know it feels really uneven but more importantly it's just dull like seriously it's not that long of a film but it feels like double its runtime i don't know uh, for me personally this just was not the movie for me uh but it seems to be somewhat popular i mean it has a 6.2 currently on imdb so you know it's got that going for it that's 
that's still kind of middle of the road, but yeah, for me personally, I just did not like this film. It's lucky that there's only two films we can review from 1922, or sorry, from 1925, because yeah, it wouldn't have gotten the Silver Skull any other way, so... But anyway, this is my opinion. This is my humble opinion and the opinion of the uh, Horror Academy. So, um, or sorry, the Retro Horror Academy. Make sure I don't get in trouble with the Horror Academy people. So, moving on now. The number one horror film from 1925. Winner of the Golden Skull Award. The Phantom of the Opera. Story about a uh, horribly disfigured man who falls in love with a young starlet who is destined for, you know, greatness. So, this movie, uh, I believe the producer, and I'm sorry if I butcher his name as well, Carl, or Carl LeMay, LeMare, Lemur? I'm going to call him Lemur. I know, I know for a fact that's not it, but we'll call him Lemur. Carl, uh, you know, he was in uh, Paris at the time, and he uh, bumped into... Oh, I'm blanking on this dude's name. Uh, Gaston LaRue. LaRue. Something Frenchy. And uh, anyways, the guy who wrote the story uh, for Fan of the Opera. And once he read it, he knew he had to do it. So he got the rights immediately. And of course, working at Universal and already having that working relationship with Lon Chaney. Boom, they were in business. And uh, yeah, Lon Chaney jumped aboard to play the Phantom. Uh, this movie, and I didn't realize any of this backstory at all, uh, this movie had a really bad, troubled production starting off. Uh, the big thing was, I guess, the director kind of rubbed everybody the wrong way, and I guess they all had more of a grander vision of this film, and he was just kind of a, eh, just roll the cameras, let's just get this shit in the can and move on. And so, the fact that, like, you know, he's the only one who's kind of going at, you know, attacking it from this uh, point of view and everybody else is wanting to make a great film yeah it got to a point where I guess at one point he's trying to direct Lon Chaney and Chaney just told him to go to hell and Lon Chaney just did his own thing uh, we heard the same thing on uh, The Hunchback of Notre Dame however on this movie it felt like it was more agreed upon that Lon Chaney would direct himself because he was originally slated to be director and then he stepped down so he can focus on the acting but here that's not the case at all I'm, Chaney's just like, nope, I'll do what the fuck I want, and that's what he did. Uh, when they shot the first uh, cut of the film, they, you know, they had a different ending altogether. And when they premiered that ending, I guess they were just booed out of the auditorium. And I don't remember exactly what they said the ending was. Uh, somehow she falls in love with the the Phantom, and I don't know. He still ends up getting a. I think he ends up like killing over like she gives him a kiss and then he just dies in a chair did i read that right i don't know but either way it was weak sauce so you know the studio pulled it back reshot it well thing is the director uh for whatever reason just did not come back whether if he was fired or he quit that has been uh, a bit of debate on that but either way he just doesn't come back and so they bring in this other guy to kind of step up and uh they shoot and they basically try to re-scrap a lot of the stuff he shot. Uh, so this other guy, you know, throws in his scenes. They give it a different ending, uh, closer to the ending we got. But, you know, still, she falls in love with the Phantom, gives him a kiss. And then, you know, he gets taken out by the mob. However, this also was considered just horrible. Uh, mainly due to the fact that it was just a lot of, 
I guess, drama and talky scenes and just subplots upon subplots. And everybody's like, what the fuck is this? And so they had to yank it back a second time and cut together a third cut of the film. Uh, this time, they would go back and take much more footage from the original cut. Uh, so I guess, you know, the original director, and I'm blanking on his name, Roland, Justin Roland, something like that. Oh, it's not Justin Roland, that's Rick and Morty. I forget the guy's name. It was something like that, though. Anyways, he, uh, they used a lot of his footage, uh, and but they kept the ending somewhat, or to build to the ending uh, from the other version, uh, from the second version. However, I guess where they kind of decided to draw the line was instead of making the Phantom sympathetic, he was just going to be a bastard till the end. So he's definitely played up more. Of it. Even though there is some sympathetic, you know, qualities in Cheney's performance and in you know the final product. Uh, in the end, he's just batshit crazy, insane, uh, which leads to I think my my opinion the best ending they could have possibly had. Um, which I'll get to that later. So, anyways, but when it when it finally came down and that was released for the third time and the final time, like this is the legit you know release of the film, it was much more love. Like people just you know like oh yeah, that's what we're talking about right there. Um, unfortunately, the first two cuts are not available. Apparently, they were lost in like whatever big fire happened uh, at Universal. Uh, the vaults so you know some of the shit's now gone there are still a few frames i guess that survives of these original endings but for the most part they're gone all right taking a drink i don't edit this shit i take the easiest approach here one cut one take it's all you guys get anyways so it comes out it's a huge hit uh the crazy thing is is this thing would have multiple releases within the years. At, at one point, they experimented with color. They they would use different color tints previously, and we've seen this, you know, just with the movies we reviewed here at the Retro Horror Academy. You know, you'd see blue tints to indicate nighttime, or you know, sometimes you'd see even red, uh, kind of a yellowish tint, stuff like that. Um, However, this is the first time we actually get uh, certain scenes, and the scene that they would color in would be, um, I believe, the ballroom scene, and then the masquerade of death uh, scene where he's dressed up, you know, as the masquerade of death, and uh, you see the reds and everything like that. And this was all hand done on the actual film, you know. So you know, it takes a lot of like, holy shit, there. Um, they had a special guy come in to do the score. And I guess he was actually there at the premiere. And, I mean, they did a huge blowout for this premiere. Again, you know, Universal struck gold with uh, The Hunchback of Notre Dame and considered these more prestige pictures now. So now these were big events when they went down. So they actually had an organ there. And this composer, you know, played the music live for him. Um, again, I believe all the music uh, has, you know, since disappeared. So I don't know if there's any uh, surviving uh you know, score left over. But either way, you know, just kind of an interesting footnote there. Um, later on, kind of jumping ahead to the future here, but when Lon Chaney would leave Universal, uh, Talkies came out. And it was around 1930 when, you know, this movie's still doing good business. It's still, you know, doing the circuit or whatever. Um, but at this point now, Talkies are all the thing. And I did not know this until I did my research for this movie that I guess apparently at this point, you know, a lot of theaters just refused to flat out 
play silent films. They're like, no, it's all about the talkies. And so some studios would take their uh, films back and take out the title cards and then just overdub uh, the lines, even if it didn't really sync up to the mouth at all. They just would go ahead and speak their lines into it. And they'd usually get the actors to come back. But, of course, Lon Chaney was uh, gone from Universal at this point, so uh, he never did get to you know, add sound to his you know, role. Uh, but yeah, so I, I know that's always kind of crazy that you know this one movie had so many different releases under different you know whatever, and even then, uh, a lot of the versions that go out, they had an international cut uh, as well as the sound cut, and so these extri- uh, exhibitors would go ahead and kind of cut what they wanted anyway. So there's so many different versions of Family Opera out right now. Uh, I'm not sure what version I have. To be honest with you, that I watched, I have the DVD of this. Uh, I'm not sure what you know what version I have, but either way, I you know I feel like I have a pretty complete you know version of it. Though there's nothing really cut out. There's no continuity offering like that. So uh, this film does have a 7.6 currently on the IMDb, and it has a 90% Rotten Tomato score. Um, for me personally, I absolutely love this movie. I think I already told the story when I did uh, Nosferatu. But I'll tell it again for those who didn't listen to the Nosferatu episode, or the, sorry, the 1920 episode, or 22. Uh, get my dates all mixed up here. Anyways, um, no, so I bought, you know, I was looking for a copy of Nosferatu, and I was in a Sam Goodies back when America still had Sam Goodies, and uh, I found this uh, double disc uh, DVD that had Nosferatu and Family Opera. And honestly, for whatever reason, I just didn't care about Family of the Opera at the time. Now, at this point, I'm probably my late teens, early 20s, probably late teens. So I'm probably like 18, 19 at this point. Uh, but really getting big into collecting DVDs. Uh, so, you know, I'm building my collection up. And I always wanted to see Nosferatu. Uh, just, you know, I've always seen clips of it, never actually saw the movie. So I was really pumped to see, you know, see that. And Fan of the Opera, even though I've seen uh, other versions, the, the Robert Englund version from, I believe, 88. Uh, plus, it was also, you know, much like, you know, Nosferatu or, you know, Dracula. There's been so many versions of it that, you know, I've seen, like, versions on TV. I remember, like, Goosebumps did an episode that was kind of like, you know, Fan of the Opera. Or your friend Dark did a version of, you know, Fan of the Opera. And, you know, countless others. So I've, I've seen the, you know, things. And it's, it just wasn't ever really my thing at the time. Uh, so I would watch Nosferatu and honestly was just, bored to tears. Uh, I've grown to appreciate Nosferatu now, but being 18, 19, I've already seen Dracula so many times that I was so disappointed by how closely it followed it. Like, I I guess I was expecting something totally different. I don't know what I was expecting, but either way, I wasn't big on Nosferatu. And then just one random day, I was like, you know what, let me just throw in Fan of the Opera. This is one I didn't really want to see, but, you know, fuck it. I never want to be that guy who bought DVDs just to hoard them, like... I have a friend of mine I worked with that, you know, he just bought DVDs and then he never watched them. I don't know why. He just had them on his shelf. Honestly, he didn't watch any of them. But there'd be a lot of them that you'd still see in the plastic on his shelf. And you're like, what the fuck? I don't know. Weird guy. But anyways, I didn't want to be that guy. So I was like, I'm going to sit down and watch this. And I mean, I just fell in love with it. I thought it was really good. Uh, It's a little slow at parts, but my God, when it picks up, it picks up. And, of course, we get the famous unmasking scene, which is just awesome uh, that's something i kind of glossed over i guess whenever i was you know kind of building up this movie was you know again cheney at this point was so famous for doing his own makeup that that almost became more of the the vehicle i guess the, the, this thing that people were talking about almost like how when hitchcock would uh, 
you know, release a new movie is almost like they were more interested in his little cameo, like where are we going to find, you know, the hitch at, as opposed to, you know, the actual movie itself. And I guess it was almost kind of like that here where, you know, more people were talking more about what the makeup is going to look like as opposed to, you know, the actual performances or, the you know, whatever. And... Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, even today's standards, it lives up. It looks ghoulish. It's, you know, frightening. And then Chaney's performance, my God, this guy just kills it. In fact, this is my favorite performance that he's done ever of all, you know, uh, all the films I've seen him in anyways. Uh, This is the one. Uh, I love the ending when they, you know, the town folks are chasing him through the tunnels and out, you know, on the bridge. And he's cornered, and in a moment of just... Being batshit crazy, he reaches into his pocket and pulls something out, hand above his head, and people flinch. They back up. You know, what does this madman have? And then he reveals he has nothing, and he just starts laughing maniacally as they descend upon him and kill him. Fucking baller. I mean, seriously, I I hope if I'm ever chased down by an angry mob and I realize I'm not getting away, that that's the way I'm going to go out right there. Just pull out nothing, laugh it off as they kill me. Ah, love it. Uh, So yes, uh, this movie gets the Golden Skull. This is the number one uh, horror film, 1925. uh, And deservingly so. This is truly just an iconic film. So uh, that's it. That's all we got this uh, episode of the Retro Horror Academy. To recap, we inducted Mary Shelley into the Horror Hall of Fame. Uh, We gave the monster the number two rank spot along with the Silver Skull Award and our number one horror film of 1925 and winner of the Golden Skull Award The Phantom of the Opera so from the Retro Horror Academy my name is Daniel Richardson thank you for watching and uh, or sorry listening and uh, yeah you're dismissed <laughs>